Good morning. Uh, would you stand with me in reverence for the reading of the Holy Scriptures from Revelation 9, 6 through 10. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angels said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, um, every person needs food. And tragically, there are cases when that food has to be, you know, intravenously received or whatever. But the normal course of things is uh, to survive, you need food, you need calories, you need input into your body to regenerate cells and to give you energy and to make things work the way they're supposed to be. Um, God, in his wisdom, made it, made us, made you, made me, to require food in order uh, to survive, but also to flourish. You know, there's a difference even between a basic amount of food that will keep you alive for another day and the amount that will give your body what it needs to actually operate at maximum capacity to flourish in a physical sense. But you know, one of the things we've talked about and hinted at across this series, God of Every Good Thing, is the fact that sometimes Christians, some streams of Christians, maybe you, maybe your parents, maybe your pastor, maybe uh, a leader in your life, maybe a book that you read, um, it can contribute to this idea that the church can have a reputation for being anti-pleasure. Um, from Tish Harrison Warren's great book we keep quoting in this series, uh, Liturgy of the Ordinary, she says this, the church has a reputation for being anti-pleasure. Many characterize Christians in general the way H.L. Mencken rightly described Puritans, people with a haunting fear that some, someone somewhere might be happy. <laughs> I think that does the Puritans a little dirty, frankly, but uh, you, you get the sentiment. She goes on, in reality, the church has led the way in the art of enjoyment and pleasure. New Testament scholar Ben Witherington points out that it was the church, not Starbucks, that created coffee culture. Coffee was first invented by Ethiopian monks. The term cappuccino, this is true, refers to the brown, the shade of the brown used for the habits of these Capuchin monks of Italy. Coffee is born of extravagance, an extravagant, extravagant God who formed an extravagant people, who formed a craft out of the pleasures of roasted beans and frothed milk. And in Portland, we all say, amen. <laughs> it just made me want to take another sip real quick. This milk isn't froth, but it'll do. There's a, yeah, yeah I, could, I could list a, a litany of examples of, of Christians or churches who have pioneered even just culinarily uh, amazing arts within our world. Um, but there's, there's, one, there's one person who 
came to mind recently. I just discovered this person like a year or so ago. Josh White was telling me about him. He discovered him before I did. But he was this Episcopal priest named uh, Robert Farrar Capon. And I found out that he had this book. His most well-known book is this book called The Supper of the Lamb, A Culinary Reflection. And so he was a priest, he was a pastor, shepherd of people, he wrote a lot of theological works, but this book is literally one half cookbook, one half theological reflection. And if you're like, what? I don't know, I just ordered it a few days ago and I was kicking myself that I hadn't had a chance to read it before I delivered this sermon. Um, but I, I've been kind of trolling all these little quotes of his and listen, this is from that book, The Supper of the Lamb, which literally teaches you how to prepare lamb like 12 different ways or something like that. Um, he says, so apparently the book, again, I haven't read it, it's coming in the mail soon. Apparently the book is him giving, you know, instructions for setting up your kitchen and then, ins you know, instructions for preparing the different elements that go into this, this uh, lamb supper. And then he'll just break out into these passages of praise or theological reflection. One of them says this, he says, food is the daily sacrament of unnecessary goodness ordained for a continual remembrance that the world will always be more delicious than it is useful. Necessity is the mother of cliches. It takes playfulness to make poetry. You don't have to be an expert on the Bible to know. You just have to be a little bit familiar with it to know that the enjoyment of food is even central to the people of God's religious identities. Think of the, the biblical feasting culture. Go read the Torah and think of all the different feasts that were prescribed for the people of God to celebrate and commemorate and to not forget the amazing things that God had done. How are they to remember it? By cooking amazing food together and eating and celebrating together. Or you think of the picture the New Testament gives of the home, specifically within the home, the table, the dinner table, as this place where hospitality is most fully given and received, where connection is built. Table is the heart of community in the New Testament. Who you eat with says something unique about what type of person you are, for good or for ill. So today's about food. God of every good thing, the good thing in this case being food, the food that we eat. And with all of these, our, our, the heart of these messages has been to try to get all of us to develop a wider lens and clearer eyes to see the good things of God and to receive them first just on their own as a, a piece of enjoyment intended for us as a good gift from the Father, but then to be able to trace those things up to Him, to connect them back to the gift giver where they can become not just a momentary pleasure, but a signpost to the even deeper, more beautiful, more pleasurable realities that are found in God Himself. So today we're talking about food, and I just want to disclaim, so si since the goal is to give you a higher ver vision of food, I'll just say this stuff from the outset. Yes. There are numerous ways people can interact with food for good or for ill, obviously. You know, we can treat food as a purely functional thing and kind of denigrate the, the pleasure that's meant to be derived from it. That's, I'd say that's a negative. Or on the other side, we can treat it as this purely extravagant aesthetic thing where, you know, it becomes an idol for us in a number of ways. We can eat food in a way that nourishes our bodies or we can treat food in a way that harms our bodies. Scripture warns against both, or warns against the negative one, I should say. Nourishment's good. Uh, we can give food a great deal of reflection, and it can be something that really causes our minds to stir, or we can do it totally passively, non-reflectively. We can denigrate it, or we can idolize it. We can respect it and appreciate, or we can view it with suspicion. Or best of all, we can take it as the gift from God, properly understood and properly utilized that it is meant to be. So 
All of that is true. Maybe we'll do a, another sermon one day to balance this on gluttony or something, but that's not today. Today, we want to get excited about food, excited about the good gift that it is properly received. So let's pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, uh, this is another weird sermon that I never really expected myself to be preaching, um, but I trust that uh, all, of this, all this amazing stuff you have in your word about food and about the enjoyment and about the community building aspect of it and about the way it connects us to you is in your scripture for a reason, Lord. We're meant to think about these things. We're meant to celebrate these things. We're meant to get excited about these things. And so uh, we pray that we would. We pray that all the cautions and um, careful necessities would be there as well, Father. But uh, we thank you for the good gift of food. We pray that we would learn to see it as an avenue for worship more and more. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Genesis 129, how many times do we keep going back to this stuff? But we have to. Genesis 129, God said, Behold, I have given you, Adam and Eve, every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its, fe- in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Genesis 9.3, after the flood, talking to Noah and his family, he says, Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, so I give you everything, specifically talking about the animals. God created us to need food, and he gave us food to satisfy that need, to fulfill that need. Fascinatingly, I I just feel like I just made this connection, but I've seen a number of theologians talk about this. Food, you can rightly think of it as the gifts and the glories of Eden, the garden, made consumable. It's the glories of the beautiful world that God has made and made actually physically nourishing. You take them into your body. And so all the aspects, all the glorious aspects of Eden that we talked about last week when we were talking about gardens, they apply to food as well. First of all, think of just the mere function of food. Function of food as nourishment. Nourishment or sustenance like we talked about last week in the garden. This is where that becomes so practical. The fruit of the trees is taken into our bodies, processed by our bodies to give us, again, energy, the replacement of cells, um, all kinds of benefits. It keeps us alive. It sustains our lives. It's interesting to note that food did not have to taste the way that it does. Food did not have to taste like anything. We said, we said this about the beauty of the visual, you know, the visual elements of the natural world. It could have been flat and gray. Our food could have been flat and gray. It could have just been like astronaut food or something, you know, it's all in a little pouch that you just mix with water and it doesn't really taste like anything. Um, and, that, and you get on with it and you're sustained. But that's not what God did. That's not what God did. God made gave the variety of flavors as well as the thousands of taste buds that occupy all of our tongues. He gave the incredible variety for us to be enjoyed. We're going to talk about that more in a second, but it's also fair to say that food didn't have to taste as good as it does, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't. When's the last time, has anyone had like some bad food in the last week? I have. Y'all are doing pretty well. Yeah, good for you. I, uh, I've, it's not bad, but I've started to hate it. I keep, I keep some oatmeal down in the church basement and some peanut butter, and uh, I, go, I leave here and I go play basketball on Tuesdays over lunch uh, with some people, 
and I'm always like, I always forget to eat lunch, so that's my emergency stash, and I just dump a bunch of oats and peanut butter and hot water. It's fine, but six months running, I'm like, if I have another peanut, like, sip of peanut butter, I'm going to do something unsavory. Um, it's become bad food for me. Maybe I should change it up. But here's, here's my point. Basic nourishment, let's, let's not get it twisted, is a gift. It is a gift to have just something that will keep your life sustained. Um, and there are all kinds of people in the world for whom that is, that's all they get to experience. And that's, that is good. That is a good thing to have food that can keep you alive. Um, I've, I've, I've used this quote before. She's, she's kind of talking about the importance of, of gathering. She's using food as a metaphor to talk about the importance of gathering as a church community, but it works on the food level as well. This is Tish Warren again. She says, there are few very good meals I remember, and there are a few truly terrible meals I remember, but most of the meals I've eaten, thousands upon thousands, were utterly unremarkable. If you ask me what I ate for lunch three weeks ago on Monday, I could not tell you. Yet that average forgettable meal, it nourished me. Thousands of forgettable meals have brought me to today. They've sustained my life. They were my daily bread. And let's not discount that. Having something to eat is a gift. It is a gift. That daily bread is something we're meant to pray for daily. We need it. So food nourishes, it sustains, but it can also do more than that which is what we were getting at. There's also the beauty of food, which gets into that delight aspect we talked about last week in the garden. Sometimes food really does taste surprisingly, gloriously, amazingly, complexly beautiful. We're able to encounter the flavors of like umami and sweetness and bitterness and saltiness and sourness and spice. We have bodies that can process it, tongues that receive it, brains that receive it, pleasure centers in our brains that fire off. All of this is the design of God. It's not incidental. That's how he made us to encounter this stuff. And it doesn't have to be the, you know, the, the stuff of like, what am I trying to say? Uh, like high cuisine, fancy, super fancy food, although I think there's an exciting place for that, that kind of creativity. It can just be thinking about one apple right off the tree and the beauty, the complexity, the sweetness of that. From, from one little element all the way up to these complex things, which leads me into the next thing, which is the partnership of God. Remember we talked about Eden as great raw materials, beautiful, incredible, amazing raw materials that humans were supposed to take somewhere. What is food except another avenue for that partnership? God creates and sustains the various elements, the, the herbs, the, the fruits, the vegetables, the animals. And through that, on its own, we see the creative glory of God and through that diversity, that amazing diversity, and also the generous love of God that he would give all of these things to us. So God creates and sustains, but then you know what food is? In many cases, it's then humans cultivating and combining those raw materials to make it even something better. Introducing the various elements of heat, salt, fat, acid, which Trindy Cookbook was talking about recently texture. We steam things, we blanch things, we sear things, we braise things, we poach things, we roast them, we grill them, and on and on and on. Humans take this stuff, and I, I just love, everyone see Ratatouille? I keep thinking about Ratatouille a ton when I was thinking about this. It's like one of my favorite movies about cooking, and it stars a rat. Um, 
I love the little depiction of whenever he's trying to explain to his like rat brother, like, no, you don't get it. Food can be more than this. And it shows the like, he has a strawberry and a piece of cheese, takes a bite of the strawberry and it shows like certain colors swirling above his head, then the cheese. But then you combine them together. This explosion happens above his little rat brain there. And it's amazing. I love that little depiction. I think about it all the time. That's exactly what happens. God has put these latent properties into these raw materials that when we combine them, something explodes. Something new is created. Something magical happens. Even more pleasure. Even more sweetness. Or whatever it is. is sitting there for us to discover. And so... Culinary artists, chefs, from the simple all the way up to the most complicated and accomplished, they're all doing this creative, cultivating work, this artistic work of taking God's raw materials, combining them together into something even more. And believe me, the raw materials are good. There is nothing wrong with those raw materials. But there's potential there for even more. So actually, this is, this is funny. It's a really exper- uh, experiential Sunday here. These are hood strawberries. They're fresh. My family just picked these on Friday. I want everyone to come get one, if, unless you're grossed out by touching stuff that everybody else is touching, which I understand. Come get a hood strawberry or two. There's a lot. What's that? <laughs> and don't eat it just yet. <laughs> Okay, so, every one of these strawberries, oh, I already got mine. Every one of these strawberries is a little bit different. Some, you know, we may have picked uh, a little bit early, some a little bit late, some of them just right. I don't know which one you got. But nonetheless, they're all pretty good. I've been snacking on these for a while, the last couple of days. But every one of these, like, we just, gla- we just blast through all of this whenever we eat most of the time because we do tend to view it in such a purely functional, utilitarian way. But each one of these little berries represents, represents the nourishment of God. He is holding this thing together by the might of his power right now. But even before that, he designed this. Look at this thing up close if you haven't eaten it already. I don't blame you if you have. Look at the colors on this thing. This isn't just simple red like we might color if we were drawing it in a sketchbook or something, but there's a myriad of colors, shades of red that bleed and gradient one into another. The little seeds, the stem itself. Smell it. What's this? I don't know. Somebody describe. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not a good, like, describing taste. What do you guys smell? Summer? That. Yes, that's summer incarnate. Anybody, anybody, want, anybody have, like, do the notes thing? Somebody, somebody, I know one of you. Alexander. I know you've got it. Floral? Yeah. Obviously sweet. That's all I've got. But it does smell sweet. Hey, John C., we're tasting strawberries, man. You want one? Oh, good. Good. I didn't see you. Okay. 
We've slowed down, we've taken this thing in. This thing and its smell, I'll take a bite. This tastes like that. This tastes like that because God wanted this to taste like that. He wanted this to react with your taste buds in such a way that you got that experience out of it. represents God's creative glory, his generosity towards us. There are calories baked into this thing from the energy of the sun and the nutrients of the ground that just one strawberry is not going to do much for you, but it's a little bit. It's, it's sustaining your body. This, was, this too was an act of partnership between God and the farmers. Now I, for, I wish I hadn't forgotten the name of the farm that we got these from. We went to one of those U-Pick farms. But those farmers invested the time to row out the seeds, to cultivate, to water, to make sure that they are planted in the right place with the right amount of sun. They brought these things to their full. And there's just pure delight here. Like, like Capen said, this isn't just necessity. This isn't just necessity. But this is deliciousness. It's meant to teach us about our creator God. I don't really have anything more to say. If you have another strawberry, just eat it. I'm going to eat one. But there's something too. Not just blast. Even when I get the first box of hood strawberries from the grocery store or whatever each year, which I always look forward to, I'm far more likely, actually Susanna took a picture of me doing this and sent it to my parents yesterday. I just hunch over the thing. I'm just like, Mowing through them. <laughs> Eat a hundred berries in like 30 seconds. And that's fun too. There's, there's a pleasure to that as well. But man, every... Oh, thank you. Didn't even know I needed it. But I do. But just to take a second and to slow down and to think and to recognize the various little elements that make this experience what it is. The experience of an Oregon hood strawberry. Food is a gift, friends, and not one from out of nowhere, but one. <laughs> I thought that was, I thought, do I have strawberry on my face? No. Good. I'm good, okay. It's a gift from a gift giver. A gift from a gift giver. So, that's food. As a taste, a little taste of Eden. Through one tiny sliver of the vast array of what's out there. But food isn't just that. Food also functions in such a way, God has built it in such a way to carry deep spiritual metaphor. Well, I'll just highlight one. This is one of the more profound ones. But think of, the, think of Proverbs 24. This is verses 13 and 14. Listen to this. The author of Proverbs writes, My son, eat honey, for it is good. And the drippings of the honeycomb are sweet to your taste. Verse 14, know that wisdom is such to your soul. If you find it, there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. So what he's saying is, hey, honey is good. Honey is good. Taste it. Enjoy it. Because it is good and it's sweet to your taste. That's enough. That's enough reason to have some honey. But also know this, that this honey was designed by God, and I was reading this week about the complexity of 
what it takes for a beehive to produce honey. It's amazing. You should just Google that if you don't know. But this whole amazing process makes this amazing, this sweet, this sweet substance. Almost universally beloved. Anybody not like honey in here? There's got to be somebody. No. Oh, okay, one. Good for you. <laughs> oh, we still love you. Almost universally beloved, he says, it, but it's not just the sweetness to the taste, but that this functions as a metaphor, as a reminder, as a signpost, as a signifier to the function of wisdom in relationship to your soul. What honey is to the tongue, wisdom is to your soul. So he says, my son, go and eat honey. And when you do, let it remind you of the goodness, the sweetness, the nourishment, the, the joy, the pleasure of wisdom, my wisdom. That as, if you live according to, if you consume that wisdom, there will be a future for you. Your hope will not be cut off. And there are countless examples. I mean, you think of the metaphors of the, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He just blasts past that too, but he's talking about the Spirit of God producing fruit inside of our lives. And we're meant to understand, of course, our vital connection as a, you know, the fruit has to be connected to the vine. That goes back to Jesus in John 15. He is the vine, we're the branches. We don't bear fruit apart from him and his Holy Spirit. But if you do abide in him, if you do remain in him, if you do keep that vitally close connection, then what gets produced? Love and joy peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. Could be, they didn't say it explicitly, but it could be that when we enjoy fruit, we ought to be thinking about something like that as well. I could go on and on and on. Jesus uses countless fruit and, and sort of agricultural and culinary metaphors, but they're all over the scripture, Old and New Testament. Food carries with it a deeper significance than just even the pleasure that it gives that is sizable. But all of it is meant to point to something, one thing, that's even deeper. It's even deeper. You probably have heard this read before if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, but in John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing at all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. When Jesus, Jesus identifying himself as the bread of life, a bread that will satisfy all hunger, will satisfy all thirst, Jesus says he himself is the one who is capable of satisfying every deepest hunger and thirst. He doesn't just leave it in the metaphor. He says it quite explicitly there in the end. Verse 40 that Jesus is the one who brings eternal life full of that satisfaction. The satisfaction and the life-sustaining nutrition of food should remind us ultimately of the even deeper form of those things that Jesus provides. 
Remember, it's not an either-or with Jesus. So sometimes you can hear this and go, okay, yeah, so Jesus is the bread of life. Therefore, what do I care about earthly bread? Shouldn't I just live off of prayer or something like that? Metaphorically, yes, you should. Physically, no, you should not. It's not an either-or with Jesus. Him being the deeper bread does not mean that real bread isn't important. In the Lord's Prayer, which we read every day or every Sunday together, and we will again today, what does Jesus command us to pray for? Our daily bread. And he means physical, daily sustenance, the food that you need to continue to function in this life. That's a good thing to pray for. You should eat your bread when you get it. Receive it with joyful thanksgiving. Jesus tells us to pray for the physical food that we need each day to live. But this Jesus and food thing kind of reaches reaches a pinnacle. You probably know where I'm going with this at the Passover meal, the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. I'll read it from Matthew 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to the disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So now do you see the connection? Jesus, the bread of life that will satisfy every hunger, as well as satisfy every thirst. Then he takes this theological idea and he gives them a physical representation of it the night he was betrayed, handed over to be crucified. He takes bread. He says, take this into yourself. Be nourished by my bread, by my body. And take this wine. Drink of it. And I'm sure they were thinking of the fact that he said, I am the living water that will satisfy. You come to me your thirst, you will never thirst again on the deepest level. So he gives them something actual to drink. Now when you do this, remember me. Remember me. Remember me. But look, notice here, that we don't do this when we, we don't mention this whenever we uh, do our little communion kind of set up each Sunday. Because I don't think it's necessary, but, but this is important for understanding kind of redemptive history so he he's sharing this meal with them this passover meal and he says i tell you i'm not going to drink this wine again i will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when i drink it new with you in my father's kingdom so interestingly jesus says this is the last time i'm going to have wine i'm putting it down you guys need to keep doing this in remembrance of me but i'm not going to do it i'm not going to do it until a coming day what day was jesus waiting for Well, it's the day that Sarah read for us in Revelation chapter 9. Revelation chapter 9 says, again, I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many uh, peals of thunder crying out. It's a huge crowd of people crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
So he's waiting for this day, this marriage supper of the Lamb. You've heard that language before of Jesus as, uh, as the groom and the church as the bride. and He's preparing a table for us for the final consummation of our relationship. When we are united together finally, this distance that we have where we see him with veiled face, one day we will see him face to face and that day will be this marriage supper that institutes, it's the beginning, it's, it's, it's what makes possible the next thing, which is the new heavens and the new earth, everything perfected. This is what kicks that off. This is what kicks that off, the marriage supper of the Lamb. All the nourishment and joy of food now is a foretaste of this coming feast. I, I take it to be that there will be quite a literal aspect to this, a literal feast we will share with our King Jesus when we are finally fully united with him to mark his final victory over sin and evil and death, the beginning of the new creation and the new story that's going to be told. And notice that this glimpse, we don't get details here, we just know that it's this marriage supper. The angel said, blessed, blessed, blessed are those who are invited to this marriage supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. But look at this, John who's recording this vision, this vision of what's going to happen one day at this, this supper. He says, <laughs> John says, I fell down at his feet to worship him. And he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. The vision was so glorious, so profound, so satisfying, so exciting. And can you just imagine the, the, the roar of this crowd, of all of the people of God throughout all of human history, from every tribe, tongue, and, tribe, tribe, tongue, and nation, together, sharing a meal in perfect harmony, with no division, no discord, no sin between them, sitting at the biggest table you could ever possibly imagine with the sweetest, best food you could ever imagine. But the main event is not the food itself, though the food will be glorious, I believe. It is the, the Lamb Himself. It is Jesus Himself. And all of us, all of us, we will be there. If you've called upon the name of Jesus, looking at Him, weeping, thinking it's all really true. All this stuff that caused me suffering in this life. All the agony of doubt that I experienced. All the dreams deferred. All the pains all the hopes, all the dreams, all the longings, all the quiet moments of just trusting. It's all true. And here I am face to face with him. And know what we're doing? We are celebrating. We are feasting together to kick off this new thing, this new story that will never end. The vision is so beautiful that John falls down and worships the angel who's telling him about it and showing it to him. That's how powerful it is. And John had a good theological head on his shoulders, you know. But he couldn't help it. It was too glorious. Angel has to rebuke him. No, 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 don't do that. We worship God. We worship God. Robert Farrar Capen again, he says, to be sure, food keeps us alive, but that is only its smallest and most temporary work. Its eternal purpose is to furnish our sensibilities against the day when we shall sit down at the heavenly banquet and see how gracious the Lord is. Nourishment is necessary only for a while. What we shall need forever is taste. 
A day is coming when every hunger genuinely will be satisfied and every gift will be experienced in perfect balance. So let's not discount our food today. Let's not take it for granted. Let's not obsess over it. But let's receive it as the gift that it is and let it stir up our imaginations. Let it unite us together in community the way only it can. And may it prepare us for that day when we sit down at the greatest table we've ever seen with the greatest host that could ever be known. Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. Amen? Well, we're going to do communion a little bit differently today. Um, it just didn't feel right. It just didn't feel right to use the little communion cups today. Uh, and we may do this more regularly. We'll see. It, it takes a little bit, little bit more planning and forethought. Um, but we're going to take, take the Lord's Supper something like the way the Lord instituted it, with wine and with bread. I imagine our wines today are very different. The process is very different. And certainly, I didn't get uh, true unleavened bread. I'd, yeah, the bread's different. But nonetheless, real bread, real wine. Of course, if you need to stay away from wine, you should stay away from wine. We still have the communion cups in the back and upstairs. Feel free to use those. Um, there are plenty of people who need to forego wine for very good reason. Um, or maybe you just don't want to dip something in the same cup today. It's still lingering ghosts of COVID, I, I understand. Um, so we do have the communion cups still in the back and upstairs. You are not a second-class Christian for partaking of communion that way. But for those who want to, we invite you, if you're a believer in Christ, to come up to the table and to tear a piece of the bread, to break it the way that Jesus did and to dip it in the cup, and to take that into yourself, and to savor it this time. I don't usually ask you to savor the flavor when we do this. And there's a tragedy to that, because this is meant to be a sensory experience for us as we remember our Lord. It will hit differently this time. The bitterness of the wine mixes with that bread. The, the visceral connection to the blood and the body becomes more apparent, and more evident. There's also a, rich, a richness to it a depth to it that we typically don't get with our little wafers and juice. So we invite you to do that. I invite you to do that if you, if you would like to. And as you do, reflect. Savor the notes. I don't know what you're gonna, what's going to come to mind, but whatever it is, let, chase that back up to our King Jesus and remember Him. That's why He commanded us to do this, that we would remember Him, His body broken, His blood shed, and I think the coming feast that waits for us, that he's going to host for us. Amen? All right. We'll have the prayer team. Joe is here. He's going to be in the back. If you uh, like to pray with someone, we're going to sing, of course. Uh, but the time is yours. The time is yours. Let's celebrate.